On October the 3rd, this past year, 13 years to the day that O.J. Simpson was acquitted in the double murders of his former wife Nicole and Ron Goldman, he was sentenced in a different case to 33 years in prison for armed robbery. And all across America, the sentiment was that O.J. finally got what he deserved. Former L.A. prosecutor Marsha Clark said the verdict was justice at last. Ron's father, Fred Goldman, he verbalized his animosity. He said, we're thankful for the verdict. We see him in shackles was incredible. He's going to be in jail for a very long time. We're thrilled. Put him where he belongs. What we finally have is the satisfaction that this monster is behind bars. No love lost there, huh? You know, strong societies insist on justice, and they are appalled at injustice, at times to the point of anger and outrage. And apparently, God understands. Psalm 58 is one of the imprecatory psalms. Imprecate means to curse. And in these psalms, David calls down judgment on evil men. The imprecatory psalms encourage our desire for justice. You know, rather than suppress a a righteous eruption, these psalms teach us that the safest way to vent our rage is to bring it to God, to place our feelings at His feet. This is how you handle these feelings for justice. Well, Psalm 58 exposes the corruption in the courts of Israel. You know, when it comes to structural evil, like corrupt politicians or like prejudicial jurists, the psalmist's rage intensifies. It is a terrible travesty when the people that God entrusts with the public good end up with sinister motives. And this is what's exposed in Psalm 58. Verse 1 says, Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? No. In heart you work wickedness. You weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. You see, Israel's judges were on the take. Decisions were going to the highest bidder. Crooks sat on the bench. You know, America's justice system isn't much better, sad to say. Courts today don't really establish innocent or guilt. They just decide which side has the money to buy the better lawyers. You know, the symbol in our modern society for the judiciary, is a blindfolded woman holding a pair of scales in her hand. The scales symbolize fairness and equity. The blindfold stands for objectivity. And thus our justice system should evaluate the evidence and render verdicts with objectivity rather than prejudice. Sad to say, that doesn't always happen. He says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Once again, the psalmist recognizes the innate sinfulness of man. We're born in sin. Deceit and dishonesty are in our nature. Always remember, sin doesn't make you a sinner. You you sin because you are a sinner. As David says, they go astray from God as soon as they are born. He says their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ear, which will not heed The voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully. You know, snakes are deaf. If you'll look closely, they don't have any ears. They are deaf, though. 
Some snakes do pick up ground vibrations, but snakes don't really hear. A cobra is charmed not by the musical sounds of the, of the enchanter, but by the movement of the charmer's pipe. This is what gets the snake's attention. And here the judges are referred to as stubborn cobras. They're unmoved by the truth. Not even a skilled charmer, the psalmist says, can persuade them to act uprightly. And David is angry at this. He says, break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Boy, I love that line. I've prayed that a lot. Just bust them in the chops, God. Break their teeth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Boy, when I see hypocrites in high places, when I see crooks at the controls, I want to react just as violently. Bust them in the chops, God. It just isn't right. Abuse of power is a terrible evil. Let them flow away as waters which run continually. When he bends his bow, let his arrows be as if cut in pieces. Let them be like a snail which melts away as it goes. We used to love to do this when we were kids. You know, find some snails out on the back porch and get, run and grab the salt shaker, you know, and you sprinkle, you dump salt on the snail. You know what happens? Just sucks right up, just disappears right before your eyes. It's so cool. This is what the psalmist hopes will happen to these wicked judges. He says, like a stillborn child of a woman, that they may not see the sun. Before your pots can fill the burning thorns, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind, as in his living and burning wrath. Oh my. He wishes to see God's wrath on these wicked judges. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Oh boy, that reeks with animosity, doesn't it? That's not really a nice sentiment. We're going to wash our feet in the blood of the wicked. That's how the psalmist feels. You know, I like how Bible commentator Graham Scroggy defends the psalmist here. He writes, If it is right for God to destroy, it cannot be wrong for His servants to rejoice in what He does. Think about that. We forget how serious God is about sin. That He is angry at evil. That His judgments are are perfect even when brutal. So that men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely He is God who judges in the earth. Every judge has a judge. God will judge all men. And the corruption of human courts is summed up in the phrase, you've probably heard it, truth is forever in the gallows. Wrong is forever on the throne. That's not exactly true. For in the end, the roles will be reversed. Jesus will see to it. That wrong is in the gallows, finally. And truth is forever on the throne. Well, the ancient preface tells us that Psalm 59 was written when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill David. You remember, King Saul was jealous over David's successes and his popularity. And so he sent a hit squad out to kill him. The men staked out David's house, and at daybreak, they stormed the house to capture David. But David's wife, Saul's daughter, Michael, helped him out of a window and then stalled so he could escape. The incident began David's life as a fugitive, and it prompted 
Psalm 59. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. In other words, I'm innocent. They run and prepare themselves, though no fault of mine. Awake to help me and behold. You therefore, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. Selah. And you remember what that means. It means pause and think about this. David wants to see all wicked men punished by God, not just those who seek to end his life. He says at evening they return. They growl like a dog and go all around the city. Indeed, they belch with their mouth. Words are in their lips, for they say, who hears? But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision. I will wait for you, O you his strength, for God is my defense. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. Do not slay them, lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. You know, David isn't vindictive as much as he just wants to, he wants to see God's justice prevail. Don't you have that longing from time to time? This world is so corrupt. Bad people get away with their crimes. Good people often suffer. Don't we all just have a longing for for justice, for righteousness? This is what David is saying. He doesn't just want God to slay his enemies, but he wants God to make a point. God, show your strength and your mercy in your judgment. He says, for the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride. And for the cursing and lying which they speak, consume them in wrath, consume them, that they may not be, and let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Let them know this, that you're on the throne. Verse 14, and in evening they return, they growl like a dog, and go all around the city. They wander up and down for food and howl if they are not satisfied. Saul's evil men are acting like a pack of wild dogs. They howl, but David sings. But David now sings. But I will sing of your power, yes. I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, oh, my strength. You ever say that to God? Oh, my strength. You're my strength. I will sing praises, for God is my defense, my God of mercy. David is writing this psalm from inside his house. The outcome of this trial is yet to be decided. He knows that the dogs, his enemies, are outside. They're stalking him. Saul's men are ready to pounce at the daybreak. But he's confident that come what may, his God will deliver him. Psalm 60 was set to the tune, Lily of the Testimonies. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask that to be played. I'd like to hear what it sounded like. This was a song, but not just for singing. You know, some songs are not just for singing. Some songs like this one are for teaching. Notice the preface, for teaching. And we're given the context. When he fought against Mesopotamia and Syria of Zobah, And Joab returned and killed 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. 
Now, the narrative of that story is in 2 Samuel chapter 8. You can go back and read that and read of the incident that precipitated this psalm. Twice we read in 2 Samuel, the Lord preserved David wherever he went. The Davidic blitzkrieg was on. 2 Samuel talks about David's triumphs. But 2 Samuel doesn't tell us what we learn here in Psalm 60. And that's this. That David's victories were won through prayer. You see, like the church, David's army did a lot of its fighting on its knees. 2 Samuel shows David's outer life, his military triumphs. But Psalm 60 reveals the inner life that went with those outer victories. David's broken spirit. David's repentant attitude. And you know, this is really true of the Psalms in general. This is why I love to read the Psalms in, in connection with their historical place in, in the history of Israel. Because as all this is going on outside, the Psalms give you a, a concept of what's going on in the heart of the person who's experiencing them. David and the other psalmists, all that they accomplished externally, they tied to their internal relationship with God. Faith was their gravitational center. Everything that happened in their life sprung from their relationship with God and related back to their relationship with God. Is God the center of your life? Is He the center of all that happens and goes on and how you respond to the events of your life? Well, Psalm 60 begins, Oh God, You have cast us off. You have broken us down. You have been displeased. Oh, restore us again. You have made the earth tremble. You have broken it. Heal its breaches, for it is shaking. You have shown your people hard things. You have made us drink the wine of confusion. You know, during the reign of King Saul, the nation Israel had been beaten. They had been humiliated. In fact, the Philistines had won some decisive victories. David doesn't mourn over the past. He doesn't blame Saul for their calamities. He recognizes the situation for what it is, and he begins to look to the future. He says, you have given a banner to those who fear you that it may be displayed because of the truth, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hear me. Though Saul had forsaken God, there were times in Israel's history where the nation had marched and had fought under the banner of God, and she will again. God has spoken in His holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. Judah is my lawgiver. You know, the kings all came from the tribe of Judah. It was the royal tribe. It was God's lawgiver. All these places that he mentions here, these were all areas of the promised land that had been captured by the Philistines at this time. But David recognizes that though they were under Philistine occupation, truly they belonged to God. And David intends to retake them, to bring them back under God's jurisdiction, to make them God's land again. He says, Moab is my wash pot. Over Edom, I will cast my shoe. Philistia, shout in triumph because of me. In the book of Ruth, remember, the taking of a man's shoe was associated with a real estate transfer. You know, a man walked his property with the soles of his shoes. Now, I bought a little bit of property recently. Not a lot of property. A couple of acres. 
whenever you come over to my house, one of the first things we'll do, we'll walk the property. Why? I don't know. But I just like to walk the property, and I assume that you do too. Let's just walk the property. This kind of gives you a sense of, a man, it gives a man a sense of, where's Kathy out? But it gives a man a sense of ownership, you know. It's a manly thing to just get out and walk the property. Well, that's what he's doing here. That's why, that's why a, the shoe was a symbol of ownership, of real estate transfer. And, and this is why David is singing, over Edom, God will cast his shoe. God will retake this land. He'll own this land. This land belongs to him. He'll own it again. This is why I like the new song that we've been singing recently. God of this city. You like that song? That, that God, this city belongs to God. We need to take back our city for God. In essence, we're casting our shoe over our city. Verse 9. Who will bring me to the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? David knows the reasons for Israel's defeats. Sin caused God to turn His back. But now he recruits God's help again. He says, give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is He who shall tread down our enemies. Sounds like it could be applied, the whole psalm sounds like it could be applied today to what's going on in Gaza, even as we speak. Israel is once again taking back land that belongs to God. Or not necessarily taking back land, but protecting their land. I prayed this morning with uh, a sister in the fellowship whose nephew is in a tank somewhere in the Gaza Strip fighting for the Israeli uh, the Israeli army. The, the descendants of David who cast his shoe over Philistia, Gaza. He took back that land, land that belonged to God. Well, Psalm 61 was written by David, and it was played on a stringed instrument. The Hebrew word naganah is singular. Implied is that the song was geared for private rather than for public worship. A solo rather than a, a band. You know, some songs are like that. They're, they're best, you know, on a single instrument than with a whole band. This must have been a song that was more contemplative than it was celebrated. Psalm 61 may have been written during the rebellion of Absalom after David had fled Jerusalem and sought refuge out in the Judean wilderness. He, pray, he prays, Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Now David is about 20 miles or so at most from the temple there in Jerusalem. But he feels that he's crying from the end of the earth. He feels abandoned. He feels alone. And he longs for the rock that is higher than I. In other words, he, he needs help outside of himself. You ever feel that way? That you need someone greater than yourself. You're dealing with problems that are over your head. You're overwhelmed. He says, lead me to a rock that is higher than I. Picture a rocky shore. And a storm is raging. And David is drowning in the surf. And he sees a rock just off the coast. And he tries to get to it. And he reaches and grabs it. 
And it becomes his anchor, the anchor that he needs. There's safety on this rock. There's perspective from this rock. There's stability with this rock. There is rest in this rock. Hey, Jesus is the rock that is higher than I. He's the supernatural help we need in the rising tides of life. He says, for you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. David wants to get back to Jerusalem. He wants to get back to the temple. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. You will prolong the king's life. His years, as many generations, he shall abide before God forever. Oh, prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. So I will sing praise to your name forever that I may daily perform my vows. I like that. So that I might daily perform my vows. You know, David was capable of rising to great spiritual heights. At times, his spirit just soared in fellowship with God, in praise of God. But here he speaks of consistency. He says he wants to perform his vows daily. His was a day-in, day-out devotion to God. Do you have that kind of a devotion? To God? Anybody can come to a meeting on Sunday and get all fired up, and get all pumped up. You know? but, but are you concerned about performing your vows daily? Is it a daily thing between you and God? Psalm 62 was written by David, and it was given to Juduthan, one of the three chief musicians. Interesting, Psalm 61 opens with a shout. Psalm 62 with silence. By the way, did you hear about the woman? She fell in love with this man. The happy couple got married. And yet three months into their life together, this lady realized that she had a problem. A marriage counselor informed her that she had married a man who was mute. Her new husband was born with a malady. He couldn't speak. Speech was impossible. Evidently, she had done all the talking to that point and had never stopped to listen to see if the man could even talk. We can make the same mistake in our relationship with God, can't we? We can do all the talking and never bother to listen. Psalm 62. Truly my soul silently waits for God. Oh my. Sometimes the sweetest praise is silent praise. Words only muddy the moment at times. From Him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. David trusts only in God. You know, trust in God plus something or someone else isn't really trust at all. I had a friend of mine tell me one time, Sandy, it's only when you turn loose of everyone else's hand that, that you can truly grab on to God's hand. You can truly experience His faithfulness. Faith realizes that God is all that we need. In verse 3, David speaks to his enemies. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. Leaning wall and a tottering fence. Both easily collapse under pressure, don't they? 
David's hoping for the same plight to his enemies. His enemies only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Boy, you know anybody like that? <laughs> you know, sometimes uh, you know, somebody walks up, well, well, bless your heart. What does that mean? Well, it can mean just about anything. Well, bless your heart. That can be a good thing. That could just be, man, I hate you, but just bless your heart. You know, you don't really know what that means. Bless your heart. People bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from Him. And boy, I love this in verse 5. My expectation is from God. You know, so much of our discontent stems from our own selfish expectations. We think we know what's best for us. You know, we should come to God with a blank slate. Is our expectation from Him? God, here's my life. You fill in the blanks. Instead of coming to God with a shopping list. Are we asking God to decide what's best for us and for our family? You know, this Hebrew word expectation, it means literally a twisted cord. David's life, his entire world was interwoven with God. He's like a yo-yo right on the end of the string. He's like a yo-yo tied to God's string. That's how David pictures himself. You know, God sends him down. That's where he'll go. God brings him up. That's where he'll go. If God wants to send him around the world, well, he'll just go around the world. If God wants to pop him down and let him hesitate for a while before he pops him back up, well, he'll just wait. And he'll just hesitate. He's like a yo-yo on the end of God's string. He's just spinning. He just trusts in God. My expectation, God, is from you. He has no expectation out of life whatsoever but to follow God. That's a good place to be. And notice also here in verse 5, David waits for God alone. Notice those words. God alone. He has no other options. He has burned all of his bridges. He is totally dependent on God. If God doesn't come through, then David is doomed. You know, we insult God when we keep our other options open. We insult Him when we plan for just in case. David's faith was in God and God alone. It's interesting, this one word, alone, became the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation from which you and I descend. This one word alone became the spark that ignited Christianity all across Europe. It called, caused millions to turn from the false religion of Roman Catholicism and back to biblical Christianity. The Reformers championed four things. Sola Scriptura. Sola Christos. Sola Fide. Sola gratia, Scripture alone, scripture, scriptural authority comes from the Bible. Spiritual authority comes from the Bible, not the traditions and the councils and the pronouncements of the church. This book is our authority. Sola Scriptura. Christ alone. He is our mediator, not the Pope, not Mary, not the saints. We go to Jesus and Jesus alone. Faith alone. Sola Fide. 
Jesus' death on the cross earned a complete pardon for sin. Saying the rosary, saying a thousand Hail Marys, don't add to His finished work. And grace alone. God's favor is a free gift. It can't be gained by our good works or our charitable deeds or our religious rituals. Sola Scriptura, Sola Christo, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia. Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone. Alone. Trust in Him and Him alone. Verse 6. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. And God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. All humans are lightweights compared to God. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. He's saying mortal men and material wealth will ultimately let you down. Now I hope that God blesses many of you with increased riches. I pray for that. For he uses servants with material means and with the gift of giving to advance his kingdom. But there is a pitfall. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Possessions are not evil as long as your possessions don't possess you. As Paul said, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Verse 11, God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. We would do well to remember that. I hope President Obama remembers that. I hope all those that have been elected to office remember that. That power belongs to God. Author Lloyd Ogilvie, he puts it this way. Those who trust in God alone have Him and everything else. Those who trust in Him and anything else end up without Him and nothing else. Ultimately, all power is derived from God. Psalm 62 closes. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. Power and mercy belong to God. Psalm 63 is titled, A Psalm of David When He Was in the Wilderness of Judah. Now Psalm 63 was probably written by David after he had been driven from Jerusalem by his rebellious son Absalom. He begins, O God, You are my God. Early will I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh longs for You in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. I've been in the Judean wilderness, and it's one of the driest and most barren places on the planet. Temperatures in the summertime reach 120, 125 degrees. There's no shade. The only relief from the hot desert sands is early in the morning. And that's when David seeks God. He says, early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. It's been said man can live 40 days without food. He can live three days without water. He can live about eight minutes 
without air, but he can't live a single second without God. As David describes the barren desert, he could just as easily be talking about our world today. Today we live in a materialistic wasteland. A dried up spiritual climate. And what does it do? It leaves people hungry and thirsty for spiritual truth. For true relationship with God. Only God Himself can satisfy us. He says, so I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. David has left, had left the palace and he would left his harem, he would left his throne, he would left his city. But the only thing he longs for to return to is the sanctuary. For there he'll find the presence of God. He says, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. Remember, David was king. He had experienced a lot of life, extravagance, and pleasure, and excitement, and adventure, and fame. And yet none of it held a candle to one drink of God's goodness. He says, your loving kindness, O God, it's better than life itself. Verse 5, my soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. I want you to notice, David gives God both ends of his day. Did you notice this? Verse 1, early will I seek you. Verse 6, I will meditate on you in the night watches. He gives God both ends of his day. When he wakes up, first person he talks to is God. Before he goes to bed, the last person he speaks to is God. In verse 8, he says, my soul follows close. I like how the old King James renders verse 8. It says, my soul follows hard after you. Do you follow God aggressively? Do you follow hard after God? Or do you just kind of toy with God? Do you just kind of play with the things of God? When, it can, when it's convenient, when it's kind of there in front of you, that's when you'll kind of delve in. You know, when, when you've got nothing else to do and, and you happen to see your Bible sitting over in the corner, you'll walk over, you'll pick it up, maybe you'll read it then. Is that how you treat God? Or do you follow hard after God? In the morning when I wake up, you're my first thought. At night before I go to bed, you're, you're the one I want to end my day with. He says, but those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory, but the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. Voltaire, the French infidel, liked to mock God. He saw wars, he saw that wars, he thought that wars were won by force, not faith. And he would often scoff. God is on the side of the big battalions. That's what Voltaire would say. David, though, would disagree. Without God's intervention, he knew that he stood little chance of regaining his kingdom. But David trusted in God. 
And David knows the only way Absalom can steal David's throne is for Absalom to knock God off his throne. And that ain't going to happen. So David is, is brimming with confidence as Psalm 63 closes. Psalm 64 could be entitled, A Sharp Tongue Gets a Split Lip. Like that? A sharp tongue gets a split lip. In the psalm, God judges those who have slandered David. He says, hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Now notice David doesn't ask God, or doesn't ask to be delivered from the enemy. He asks to be delivered from the fear of the enemy. You know, you know most of my... Most of my fears, my greatest, most of my greatest troubles are those that never happened. You know? So often it's, it's not, our worst enemy becomes the fear of, of the trouble. Fear of man paralyzes faith in God. In the words of FDR, we all, all we have to fear is fear itself. He prays that God will deliver him from the fear of the enemy. He says, hide me from the secret plots of the wicked from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity who sharpen their tongue like a sword. Oh my. That's a gossip for you. Sits around just kind of sharpening the, their tongue like, like it was a sword. As I mentioned, a sharp tongue gets a split lip. And bend their bows to shoot their arrows. Bitter words. Bitter words. Man, they're like poison darts. You know, that's... that's uh, that's the imagery. That they may shoot in secret at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. Ever been hit with one of these poison darts? Word of gossip? A lie told about you? Slander? Hurts, doesn't it? Stings. And a juicy lie, it emboldens the liar. That's what he says. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. You know, once they start down this path, you know, they get, they, they get emboldened. You know, a gossip gets reckless with his words and gets more and more reckless. The more they get away with, the more they, they tend to, to spout. It's been said the gossip is the devil's postman. They encourage themselves in, in an evil matter. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who will see them? They devise iniquities. We have perfected a shrewd scheme. They think they're going to get away with their deceit. He says, both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. I'll never forget my granddaddy's pocket knife. He had a pocket knife he carried with him all the time. He must have sharpened it every day. It was so sharp that he'd just sort of slide it down his arm and he'd just sort of peel the hair right off his arm. You know, we'd all, wow, that's sharp. It was really sharp. His knife would sort of slide through a piece of leather just like it was butter. He honed that knife on a whetstone. He took me down to see it one time. And he, he just honed it on that whetstone until it got razor sharp. Here we're told that men sharpen their tongues on the whetstone of envy. On the whetstone of pride. That's where gossip is born. That's where gossip gets sharp. He says, but God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded. So he will make them stumble over their own tongue. All who see them shall flee away. All men shall fear and shall declare the work of God. 
for they shall wisely consider His doing. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in Him, and all the upright in heart shall glory. God has arrows of His own. The truth is also a pointed reality. And God will eventually defend the righteous from lying lips and from the slandering tongue. You know, A.B. Simpson, he once wrote this. I would rather play with forked lightning or take in my hands hot wires with their fiery current than to speak a reckless word against any servant of Christ. Wow. When someone tells lies about us, we don't have to defend ourselves. God has arrows of His own. And God will shoot back. Now, Psalm 65 through 68 are prophetic of a time yet future. Let me give you just sort of a thumbnail sketch of end time prophecy. The rapture of the church is going to occur. And then seven years of great tribulation, God's judgment are going to come upon this earth. It occurs right before the second coming of Jesus. And three Things are going to happen during the Great Tribulation. Three P's, you can remember them. God is going to punish the wicked world in which we live. That's what the Great Tribulation is all about. God's punishment. At the same time, too, God is going to purify Israel, His people. They're going to come through it, through the difficulties, with a refined faith. And then the third thing that's going to happen during that time, it involves you and me, we're going to party down in heaven with Jesus Christ. Okay? So the great tribulation. God is going to punish the wicked. He's going to purify Israel. And he's going to party with the church. After the great tribulation, Jesus returns to earth. And he establishes his kingdom. He ends man's dominion. And he restores the earth to its original beauty. The desert flowers like a rose. The lamb lies down with the lion. The curse of Genesis 3 is lifted. Jesus rules the nations and he ushers in an age of peace. This kingdom lasts for a thousand years and it is the subject of Psalm 65. Praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion. And to you the vow shall be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. Now notice Jesus is called the God who hears prayer. Today we come to Jesus spiritually on our knees in prayer. But the day will come when we'll rise to our feet and we'll walk up to Jerusalem and we'll speak to Him personally, physically. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. This is what Jesus has already done for us on Calvary's cross. He says, blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. He shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. By awesome deeds in righteousness, you will answer us, O God of our salvation, you who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of the far off seas. All the earth is going to trust in Jesus during this time. You know, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16 tells us that in this day, the whole earth is going to come up to Jerusalem once every year to worship Messiah from his throne there, who reigns on his throne there in Jerusalem. We're told they worship the God who established the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power. You who steal the noise of the seas, the noise of their ways, and the tumult of the peoples. You remember back in Genesis we discussed how that the earth's ecosystem 
was far different before the flood of Noah than afterwards. That before the deluge, a canopy, a water vapor canopy sort of shrouded the earth and created a greenhouse effect on the planet. That's why there were no large-scale large air movements or storms uh, before the flood. In fact, there wasn't even any rain before the flood. According to verse 7, in the kingdom age, Jesus will once again steal the storms. He'll, he'll, he'll silence the tumult of the people. He'll end the noise of the seas, the noise of the waves. He'll steal the storms. From that, we might assume that God will restore this canopy environment. And once again, the earth will be shielded from the sun's harmful radiation. As a result, the earth will become a tropical paradise. People will live to extremely old ages, just as they did before the flood. This is all going to happen again. And by the way, it's all predicted for us in the latter chapters of Isaiah. Verse 8. They also who dwell in the farthest parts are afraid of your signs. You make the outgoings of the morning and evening rejoice. And of course, after the great tribulation, the folks who are left are going to tremble at God's signs, for they will have seen plenty. Terrible signs and terrible wonders will rock this planet off its axis. In that day, God won't have much trouble getting people's attention. He says, you visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows. You make it soft with showers. You bless its growth. You crown the year with your goodness and your paths drip with abundance. They drop on the pastures of the wilderness and the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered with grain. They shout for joy. They also sing. Man, when Jesus reigns on this earth, this planet will enjoy unprecedented peace and prosperity. In the meantime, all creation groans, Paul tells us in Romans. All creation groans and longs for the redemption of this planet. Matter of fact, Romans chapter 8 sums up this longing. And I love the Phillips translation. Let me read it to you. Romans 8. The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. In the end, the whole of created life will be rescued from the tyranny of change and decay and have its share in the magnificent liberty which can only belong to the children of God. What a day. May that day come quickly. Psalm 66 begins... Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Remember Psalm 61 began with a cry. Psalm 62 began with silence. Now Psalm 66 begins with a shout. And in verse 2, it follows up with singing. So, how do we approach God? Well, how do you feel? Feel like crying? Go ahead and cry. Feel like being silent? By all means, be silent. Feel like shouting? Go ahead and shout. Feel like singing? Sing a good song. What you don't do when you come to God is mask over your feelings. Cover them up. Put up a wall or facade. Whenever you go to God, you always start where you're at. He knows where you're at anyway, doesn't he? You always start where you're at. I love that song. Come just as you are. That's how God always wants us to come. He says, sing out the honor of his name. I love this. 
make His praise glorious. In other words, crank it up, man. Jazz it up. Juice it up. Put in them licks and them kicks. How about a little harmony? Let's build it to a crescendo. Let's make God's praise glorious. Always remember, worship is the combination of both heart and art. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. Come and see the works of God. He is awesome in His doing toward the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the river on foot. He refers to the crossing of the Red Sea. He says, there we will rejoice in Him. He rules by His power forever. His eyes observe the nations. Do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. Oh, bless our God, you peoples, and make the voice of His praise be heard, who keeps our soul among the living and does not allow our feet to be moved. For you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. You have caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but you have brought us out to rich fulfillment. And this is the song that the Jews will sing during the Great Tribulation. For fierce persecution will purify them and refine them. Verse 13. I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows, which my lips have uttered and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer you burnt offerings of fat animals with the sweet aroma of rams. I will offer bulls with goats. Come in here, all you who fear God, and I will declare what He has done for my soul. I cried to Him with my mouth, and He has extolled with my tongue. And then verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Now, it's not that God refuses to hear our prayers if there's sin in our lives. If that were the case, then we could just forget about prayer altogether. Now, the psalmist is talking here about deliberate rebellion. If there's a lack of honesty, if we're trying to cover things up, if we're not being open and upfront with God, if that's the case, then, then it's going to cause static on the line between us and God. God only listens to a repentant heart, a humble heart, and an, and an honest heart. 1 Peter chapter 3 tells husbands to love their wives so that their prayers will not be hindered. Apparently, stubbornness and pride interfere with all our relationships between our wives between our God verse 19 but certainly God has heard me and the psalmist has humbled his heart and God has attended to the voice of my prayer blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer nor his mercy from me Psalm 67 is where we'll end tonight God be merciful to us and bless us and cause His face to shine upon us, that Your way may be known on earth, Your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for You shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. 
Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Today, the earth abounds with mockers and scoffers, but not in the end. When the earth is judged, and when God fills hell with unrepentant sinners, all who are left on earth will believe. And in that day, all the peoples will praise King Jesus. Verse 7, Then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. And all the ends of the earth shall fear Him. And that's where we'll end tonight.